0: So, hi everybody. Uh, delighted to be joined by Ben Wright today. Ben is the MD of Change Squared, a consultancy firm specifically for financial advisors with a passion to make their firms more effective and therefore more profitable. Um, welcome, Ben, to In the Know. Um, this is our podcast, which we've launched this month. Uh, and great to see you today in the flesh. Thank you very much indeed for inviting me on, it's, uh, it's amazing to be in such a wonderful studio. It is nice it's isn't it? A, a far cry from uh, the way, where I normally work. Yeah, We've gone old school haven't we, we've gone face to face. Which is nice I think. Yeah, yeah it's good. So um, Ben, before we start discussing Change Squared and what you're doing for the industry in terms of the uh, advisors, um, just talk me through how did you end up in financial services, what did you do wrong?
1: <laughs> well,
0: everyone's got a bizarre
1: story about they ended up, how they ended up in financial services. It, it appeared, I don't think anyone actually wanted to go into financial services, but um, my story is probably like most, kind of fell into it almost. So um, uh, I, uh, back when I was a, a, a youngster, I uh, got kicked out of college for being rubbish, so didn't have any A-levels. I basically spent the first, the first year in the pub and then got kicked out before the second year started. So I went to go and work in a jean shop. Uh, selling jeans and shirts and that type of thing. Um, and at the time, a friend of mine was working at an insurance brokerage, a car insurance brokerage, uh, and getting paid more money and said, oh, do you want to come and work here? There's a job going. Yeah. So I said, yeah, why not? That's, you know, uh, I, I'm sure I can do that. So worked there for a couple of years and then went off backpacking for a year around Australia. Um, came back and had no money uh, and nothing to do, really. So I walked into a recruitment agency and said, what have you got on Monday? They looked at uh, my CV, which was pretty sparse at that particular point, and said, "Oh, insurance, financial services. Um, Aviva have got uh, a job stacking boxes." I was like, "Yep, that'll do. Happy, happy with that one." So um, I went to Aviva uh, and stacked boxes for a couple of weeks. And while I was there, was got chatting to um, everyone else that worked there, and um, one of the team leaders said, "Oh, you you can talk a bit. You've got the gift of the gab. Um, How do you fancy going on the phones?" I said, "Yeah, what am I talking about?" I said pensions. I "Oh, okay. <laughs> what, what's that? Almost." Uh, so um, yeah, went on, went on the phones. Viva working in, in pensions, and then um, they decided that it would be a great idea if all their staff had FPC one, so they had a, a, an understanding of the industry. So I did that, and then did FPC two, and then I thought, "Well, hang on. If I get one more, I can be a financial advisor." So went on and got FPC three at that time. Um, and then actually moved away from Aviva to work at HSBC as a financial advisor uh, and did 10 years there um, as an advisor and then running teams locally and then running regional teams. I uh, did a couple of big projects for them uh, before getting head-on to the Cross Tenant group. Um, so I joined Tenant looking after their research and technical teams, so all of the panels, all of the advice process, the, the more kind of complicated side of it, um, and then from there did a, a variety of jobs in Tenet, from uh, being MD of their fund range to uh, moving on to the board, looking at business development, strategy for the group, um, new technology projects, uh, and also I did a lot of work around um, change management, specifically in reg tech compliance, that type of thing. Um, so that, that's what got me into the industry. And then um, uh, I left Tenet in April last year, April 22, uh, to start my own consultancy firm, which is which is where I am now, in, uh, in Change Squared.
0: And if I could just take you back to your employed life, mm. uh, Ben, what would you say was the most challenging role that you had, if not the most satisfying? Uh, in the
1: employed world? So uh, I would say the most challenging role that I had was probably was probably doing the fund management business, MD of a fund management business. So um, I was qualified. I hadn't done anything like that before, so it was a bit of a leap of faith for the Tenant guys to put me on to looking after the, the, the fund range, which was called Symphonia Asset Management. Um, it had been around for a while, but never gained any traction. Um, and my job was to try and make it take off. And um, I can tell you that was, that was hard. That was really hard work. And I think the main, the main issue that I encountered time and time again was that um, the, the advisor base at, at Tenant Group were staunchly independent. That was the reason that they joined, was because they wanted to be independent, and we were pushing an in-house solution. Mm-hmm. And that was like, like kind of trying to push water uphill. It was, it was a really challenging time. Um, got good growth in the end, man- managed to grow, the, uh, grow all of the funds reasonably well, not to the point of them being a complete success. Um, and in the end, I think one of the most rewarding things for me was that the business agreed with my, um, my suggestion that actually we dispose of the fund range because it, it was distracting from the main core business area so uh, we ended up selling that selling that fund management business for uh, a good amount of money and removing a lot of distraction from from the core business which i think was a it was the right decision it was a tough one but it felt very uh, very good after that had gone through that actually there was enough faith in in me to recognize that was the right decision and to back my decision to do that
0: and did you recommend it yeah to be yeah so you put all that work into it recommended it to be
1: You you know, sometimes when you stand back and and you look at something from kind of the helicopter view from the outside and you think, how is this going to work? And you sometimes get to a conclusion it it isn't, that that it will take more effort going in than you will ever possibly get in terms of reward. It just makes sense to
0: cut your losses and move on. Yeah. And uh, talking about tenant, they've Mm. been in the paper recently. Yes. Um, What's your view? What's happening with the tenant group at the moment? I mean, I think that the news on Tenet
1: was was massive. Um, Obviously, it's been reported across the the press, but it really is a a very big decision for that to have happened because the Tenet Group's been around as a network for 30 years. There's a lot of history there. And um, for them to decide to exit the network space is a a massive thing because if, if you look at where they're positioned compared to other networks, they were well capitalized. Had good backers uh, in the shareholders that owned the business. They had good technology, streamlined processes, effective ways of working, good compliance support. If you looked at it, it was it was a well structured business, but um, in the end, not profitable. And if a firm that was that well structured struggled to make profit from that type of business, it does make you question how others are are continuing or how what the longevity of others' businesses are in that particular space. So. It's been seen as a a shockwave that Tenet pulled out of the market, but I think it's potentially bigger than that. It could signal a change in
0: that network space. So do you think there's almost like the contagion effect that there's going to be more impact with other similar network or support services?
1: In the short term, it will be probably a feeding frenzy of trying to grab the advisors who are are now um, being displaced. Although, obviously, there is, a, I believe, a, um, a, a partnership been, a, been a, a set up for them to move to uh, an alternative provider. But still, any kind of disruption, there'll be a feed-in frenzy. Um, I think that if other networks are wise, they will take a real close look at what
0: Tenet have done and why, and then have a reflection on their own businesses. Yeah, it's a shame because, you know, there's going to be a lot of people affected in their head office you know in horse we're a leeds based firm it's a shame um, and just just remind me again wh- what do you think was the main cause of their effects you know their effective demise
1: i mean i'd have to speculate being on the outside yeah. but um uh, it was clear that from their financial returns that the, the the network wasn't proving a profitable enterprise um and also i think that the leadership team there were quite wise around consumer duty and what's required as a result of consumer duty. And if, if you think about that network model, the, the premise is that you have the, the principal, which is the network, and then all of your appointed representatives underneath carrying out business on your behalf. A lot of networks allow their advisors to operate in different ways. So you may end up with the principal, and then underneath that, there could be 100 different firms all doing business 100 different ways. Mm. and. Under the, the consumer duty guidance, as principle, you have to be able to ensure that everyone operating under your banner is doing things effectively, offering good levels of support, that they're offering price and value, that all this stuff. And, and actually collecting in that amount of data and then being able to analyse it and say, yes, we're comfortable that everyone is operating, I just think that is a, a, a really difficult thing to do now. If firms are more, the more vertically stacked firms are, not integrated in terms of fund propositions and the rest of it, but in terms of process uh, and the way that they operate, the the easier it will be. Um, The more that uh, the ARs can do their own thing, the more difficult it's going to be from a consumer duty perspective. So I I think that was probably a contributing factor.
0: Okay. So you think there's going to be a period of reflection from other networks and support services out there? I think there should be. You should be, yeah.
1: Um, If those that are clever will take this as an opportunity to do... And it sounds awful at this stage, but an autopsy on Tenet as to what happened and, and what went wrong and, and why this yeah. decision was made. And then uh, I think that there will be some lessons to be learned on how others can
0: structure their businesses more effectively. OK,
1: so time will tell then.
0: But a shame anyway, because 30 years is a lot of history.
1: It is a lot of history. And, um, you know, I absolutely love my time at Tenet. I, I got so much out of that business. It's it's, it's unbelievable. So it is a, it's a real shame to see. To see this this happen, although it does live on, um, they have kept the um, uh, the national side of the business uh, in, in tenant and you. So um, uh, I believe the plans are to continue to grow that as a national business, and also compliance, a tenant compliance services has been retained, which is a um, DA support business. Um, I believe that they will, the plan is to kind of grow both of those businesses in the absence of the network.
0: Okay. Well, let's. Uh, well, thank you for that. I yep, found that um, you know interesting. Let me. Um now, well, let's talk about you, okay, for a moment, sure. Then. And and this is directly from your LinkedIn profile. So I was doing some research. Now you describe yourself as curious, creative, and energized. Yes. Okay. So, how easy was it to come up with those traits? Um,
1: so I, I think that those are those are my defining traits and they've been there forever to be honest uh, that that's just how i'm kind of wired as a, as an individual it did take a while to get to get it down from the noise down to those kind of three words but i spent quite a lot of time looking at linkedin posts uh, and linkedin profiles to see how what are the ones that I engage with best? And they're the ones that said most about the individual. So rather than I like to play tennis on a weekend or you know I've got an interest in economics, it was about the individual themselves. And I thought, how can I, how can I describe myself? And those three words are what came out. That, that really defines how I look at life.
0: Okay, well let's talk about being energized then. Yep. Okay, because are you one of life's uh, just very positive type individuals? Yes, unbelievably so. In, in everything? Yes. Seriously, so when you're talking about consumer duty, yes. are you the guy walking in and saying, right, guys, we've got consumer duty, we're going to knock this out of the park, we're going to go for this? Even so, if your subjects are quite, <laughs> forgive me, quite dry or technical, <laughs> you know, is, is that what uh, you're still energized and still sort of positive around that? Yeah,
1: I, I suppose I, I throw myself into whatever I do. So if there is a, um, you know, I'm, I'm working with a firm and they've got a massive issue around a particular element of consumer duty, it's right, let's jump in, roll our sleeves up and kind of get in there and get it done. Um it, I, I find I find that, that the more energy you put out, the more energy you get back. And that's something that I've learned o- over the years really is that, that the more you kind of give to the world, the more you'll receive back from the world. And I tend to find that when I go into a project, if I throw my whole self in, then we tend to get a good result and you know, the, the business are very happy with it, and I tend to get a lot of satisfaction myself from the outcome from that, which then drives me to put myself in even further for the next one.
0: So how do you handle where perhaps people aren't as positive as you, so if you throw yourself into something yep. and you don't get that back, how do you remain still positive?
1: So um, you have to have a good knowledge of personality types and how people approach different situations. Um, I, I do read a lot around psychology and that side of things. and. Um, it's important to understand your introverts, your extroverts, your people that thrive on attention, those that love detail, and then adapt your adapt the way that you interact with them to fit their, uh, their 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 preferred way of of working. Doesn't mean that you have to have less enthusiasm or energy. It just means it needs to be channeled a different way.
0: But do you do you get off days? <laughs> do, you, do you get days uh, like yeah. I get? Like oh god, honestly. Yes. Yeah.
1: I think I think everyone has off days, and it's probably good to realize that you know. Uh, It's okay to have bad days um, because if you look at social media, everyone's always positive and super happy and all the rest of it. And you know, sometimes you have a day where you think, "God, I'd rather not be here today." Um, Thankfully for me, relatively few. Uh, I'm probably a nine or a ten out of ten most days. That's that's my wake up state, and then let's get going with life. Um, So I, I tend to be able to approach things from a good place most of the time, yeah. which really annoys my other half, because <laughs> <laughs>
0: she, she's probably more the other way around. Um, oh, is she different to you then? Is she, yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. She,
1: she's more the balancing in fact. So I'm, I'm the guy who's like, right, we're gonna go and change everything, we're gonna like do amazing things, and, what, and she's like, yeah, but how are we gonna do that? Uh, what about this? What, have you thought about that? And to be fair, we, we complement each other quite well, because she thinks about all the logistics and practicalities, whereas I'm kind of the big, big picture, blue sky type of thing, so we, we work very well together.
0: Good. And so you've had a varied career. You worked mm. at tenant for a number of years in a number of different roles. What was the idea behind Change Squared? So Change Squared was a, um, I'd thought about it for a while.
1: Well, let, let, let me tell you the, the almost kind of the way that uh, I've, I suppose Change Squared came to be. So in my, my role at that time at Tenet, I was doing a lot of strategic project work, a lot of work around process efficiency, um, around change management and in kind of regulatory technology, that kind of side of things. And I absolutely loved it. And I thought, you know what, this is so useful um, because businesses can change overnight by freeing up resource to do the things that they, they're they really good at and get rid of all the rubbish that no one needs to do. You can either automate or you can delegate down to uh, a more junior person And just organize a business in an effective way and I got thinking to myself well other businesses must need this too and I'd been at Tenant for quite a long time at that point and I had a a coach who I was working with and um, she said well could you do this with with other companies as well and I said yeah she said is it a model you could replicate I said yeah quite easily yeah the the, the concepts would be the same for different companies as as to how to approach things and um, at the end of that coaching session I thought you know what I I could I could do this I could start my own company and and help other businesses around the sector from the knowledge that I've learned and I came away thinking right this is this is something worth considering and I sat on that for probably about three weeks and at the end of three weeks I said to myself you know what what I've got is quite a cushy number so I'm gonna stay at Tenet doing what I'm doing it's a great idea but I've got too much to lose from Mm -hmm. from leaving leaving my employment and then two weeks later I got called into a meeting and told that there was a restructure and the opportunity to be made redundant. And I thought, well, there's the universe speaking. There you go. There's and the from that point, Change Square became a reality relatively quickly. So um I decided to do it. They decided not to do it because of the risk and then it just happened anyway.
0: Did you look at other alternative opportunities? Because there is a lot going on within the management consultancy. You know, they do a lot of work with advisory businesses across different areas did you consider other areas rather than just go it alone
1: um in all honesty not really i i'd I'd looked at that that side of things and i know others who have, have worked in that management consultancy space and what i wanted to do what i wanted to get from change squared was that it be my ideas and my and my, concept, my business. So rather than working for somebody else and trying to fulfill their dreams, I wanted to create my own and, and, and make that happen. So, not really. I think once I made the decision to go, to, to, to leave tenant and do something different, it was almost I was gonna do my thing, and there, there wasn't really a, a plan B or a different option.
0: And has it lived up to your original expectations?
1: It has been completely different than I originally anticipated. Um, yeah, literally completely different. So when when I started off, my, my original plan was that I was going to help small advice firms uh, get ready to sell. So there's a, there's a, a lot of M&A activity in, in, the, uh, in the advice space at the moment. It has been for a number of years now. And um, having talked to a lot of advisors who have sold, most are unhappy with the deal. Not all, but most are pretty unhappy with, with how it's all panned out in the end. And after after dissecting those kind of conversations and what had happened i thought well they have just not prepared they've gone into it and and said yep yeah, i'm happy to sell someone said oh yeah well, we'll buy and they've gone cool and then the process has just kind of gone from there there's been no real planning or thought around it so my business plan was i'll go in and help these guys think about what they want to get out of the sale get the business ready make it systemized organized cleanse the data get it going and actually you could get a, a real bump in sale price, and you, you're probably talking 20 to 30% increase in sale price by having a, a clean, ready to sell business. Um, and what I rapidly found out was that small businesses were not interested. So, you know, even if I was offering 10, 20 times return on what they would pay me to kind of get things in, in, in that space, they just wanted to exit. They weren't really bothered about, about making that much different return.
0: And Are those the advisors that will end up unhappy? After they completely, the yeah. And what 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 are they unhappy about then? So what you tend to find is that um, in most
1: of these deals, the there's not enough questions asked. So the advisor will think, right, I'm going to sell my business, I'm going to get a check for loads of money, and then uh, I'll pass the clients over, and then that's it. Great, and you know, job done, happy with that. Where do I sign? And uh, the acquirer obviously has their own way of operating and their own way of of, of having that handover process. That's not always discussed particularly well. Um, Also, there are a lot of things done which are gentlemen's handshakes or as part of the the lead up process, it's, oh, yeah, yeah, that's fine, fine. It's never written down anywhere. So what you find is that uh, the advisor believes that they've sold and they can walk away. And actually, in the contract somewhere, it says that they become an office based advisor three days a week. And they have to go into the office or they have to commute or they have to do x number of appointments per week or there's some kind of targets um in terms of clients leaving before the sale complete or as part of the sale process how that affects the overall consideration it's it's kind of basic stuff that's just not thought about so as a result of it the advisors go in thinking they're going to get one thing and the details never been discussed and at the other end when stuff starts going wrong they think oh i wish i had done that differently that's that was my business plan was to go in and think about how to stop that from happening but as i say quite quite quickly i realized that there wasn't an appetite in that marketplace to pay for to pay for help so i had to move my move what i did quite dramatically so i moved into uh, i now work with firms kind of 50 to a thousand advisors um and most of it is around embedding positive change so whether that be process change technology change or, or more around customer journey and how to get the most out of customer interactions, um, but that market has proved that there is an opportunity there to, to work in, and actually there's, there's a huge amount of job satisfaction from being in that space as well, and they also are happy to pay, which
0: helps. Well, absolutely, you've got to pay the bills, <laughs> haven't you? Yes. Do, do you find, um, and I found this from a recruitment perspective, um, there is a reluctance to pay for advice, because I always find it quite interesting that the advisers want the clients to pay for the advice, but when it comes to advisers paying for advice in, in, in business or whether it's recruitment, etc., there is a reluctance. That's what I found. Have you found the same? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But why?
1: Why is that? I think I think that it's you. You're almost paying for an unknown. So it's it's a bet, isn't it? It's a gamble. So I'm I'm gambling that you know more than I do, and I'm going to pay you some money, and hopefully what you'll tell me will be insightful, but it might not be. So it's it's that kind of gamble, um, but realistically, it's it's by far the fastest way to grow your business is to get professional help. People who have either been there and done it, or are experts in that particular area. And you know, to to quote the uh, the guru Tony Robbins, mm-hmm. you can condense decades into days by having a professional advisor come in and, and give you that guidance. And uh, it, it's definitely worth doing. Um, it, think of it as an investment in yourself and an investment in your business it will be worth it. As long as you do your research, pick the right person to get advice from, it will be worth it.
0: You see, I totally agree with that. Um, but I've also pondered the, the reasons why. Perhaps there is a reluctance. And I came to a thought process where, you know, back in the day, because we've been in this market a while, but back in the day, there used to be the provider firms that used to provide a lot of services pretty much for free. Mm-hmm. You know, we're talking the big provider. Do you think that has there's still that feeling there that they've used to have these services for free from pro- providers because the more services you offered the more add-ons then the more likely you were to give business to those do you think there's still that inherent sort of wish to get that for free because we used to have a, a qualifications business and trying to sell a mock exam for 30 quid was just painful it really was honestly i learned a lot about negotiation um but it's almost like oh the old days it was oh we get this for free we get this from whoever it was you know Mm -hmm. scottish provident or or whoever so i don't know if that's still there's a there's a sense of sentiment there
1: potentially yeah yeah i think uh, well virtually all of my exams were coached for free from providers so, you know, I'm, I'm used to that model. And uh, back in those days, you we went go-karting and golfing and all kinds of stuff. Um, and then, miraculously, business ended up with that provider. It was uh, maybe a bit of a Wild West time. <laughs> and um, obviously, a much better place where we are now. Um, I think that providers are, are still providing value into the marketplace. Slightly differently now on the approach and how they do things. But relationships, the old world was based on relationships. And I think it, it shifted into um, technical detail, I think it's moving back towards relationships now. Mm. Um, not not quite the golf days, and everything else, but I think it's the better relationship we have with providers that then the more likely you are to use services. But to, to to answer your point, advisors have got things for free previously. There is that mentality, and I think that a lot of them are just generally quite tight with the pennies unless it comes to watches and
0: cars, in which case they're quite loose with the wallets, I think. <laughs> There's always nice cars, isn't there, when you go to the road shows? Yeah. Oh, yes, yeah. 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 <laughs> okay, um, I, I looked at your website, Ben, and mm. you offer a different, uh, or a number of services um, to your clients at the moment, and you've mentioned a couple of areas where you are now getting more involved yep. uh, with larger firms. What would you say is a, a particular hot topic for you where you are engaged with a number of firms? Uh,
1: so I've got two, two main bits at the moment, which are I think are will be growth businesses for, for me going forward. Um, the, the first of which is consumer duty. And you could almost argue that consumer duty is a one-off thing. It, it's not. It's absolutely not. Um, there has been a, a real scramble to get ready for consumer duty, um, but it, it, this is kind of the, the, the start of a journey. Uh, and I think it will be an, an evolution over uh, a number of years before firms kind of hone in what their offering needs to be really to to kind of fulfil uh, fulfil the, uh, the the ethos of the regulator's requirements. Because if you look at the consumer duty framework, it is quite vague. You know, you, you must offer value for money. Well, but but what does that mean? yeah, yeah, ha- val- yeah. value to you is completely different from value to me. So I ha- subjective. You know, what is value for money? Um, You know, you must provide consumer support. So, oh, well, what what does that mean? So all of this is really left up to individual firms to decide, and firms are trying to work out what on earth it means. Um, There's been some great work done. There are some firms who are really taking it seriously and investing heavily in this. Um, There are others that are not, and I think that we will probably start to see – I think we'll, we'll start to see maybe next year some regulatory intervention, and then that will be a kick that the rest of the firms who haven't invested needed to say, well, maybe we should get our act together and, and crack on here, because you know th- there are some firms who have looked at it and said, yeah, we're fine, and that is their preparation, whereas others have spent millions on preparing for consumer duty. So there is quite a broad spectrum. Th- those who understand it and understand the requirements have spent the most money.
0: So it should have been implemented what 31st of July? Yeah. Was that the okay. that was goal? So there are still firms that haven't. Yes. Wow. So is that like Russian roulette then, just waiting for the FCA to come in and have a look at what they're doing? So
1: I would, to be fair, I would give a lot of credit to the FCA on this because in um, uh, meetings that I've I've been uh, at with the FCA there or presentations that I've listened to, they've talked about having a a, a proportional response or un- understanding that this, this isn't a, that they're asking quite a lot. So I think that as long as firms are working towards, there won't be too much of an issue. It will be those firms who have just ignored it where they'll probably go in and, and go in quite hard to say, you know, what on earth are you doing? Um, as, as long as firms are working towards, I think at this stage they'll be okay. But you do need to be really thinking about it.
0: Because we did a, a webinar, didn't we, on consumer duty? We three did. Months ago. And I remember looking at it from a consumer's perspective. And I came off that webinar and I actually thought to myself, that I already felt I was protected anyway. I think the industry's got a long way to improve itself. And then, I'm not sure who made the comment, it might have been you, Ben, that I might actually see more paperwork. coming to Yeah, and I'm thinking, I don't read it now anyway. So it's almost like all this work's been done, but from a consumer's point of view, am I actually going to be taking an active interest in signing these key featured documents from eight or 10 pages, whatever it is. It's almost like I'm not sure what I'm gonna see at the end of this process there's so i think that there there are two there are two kind of elements
1: really to 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 consider here so one of which is that consumer duty should make things easier for you to do business as a customer what is actually happening is more paperwork's being generated as people try and figure out how to fulfill that requirement so um you'll see more bits of paperwork to sign more things that you'll need to do yourself as a customer um, while this transition goes through. It should be that, you know, at the moment, a suitability report for a piece of advice could be 60 pages long. And who's gonna read all that? Because most of it is technical detail. And the reason it is, is structured that way is that if there's a complaint in the future, it can be defended. Mm. Because you can then say the client has had all of the information. If they chose not to read it, that's their own kind of fault. And that culture has been brought about by the way that the Financial Ombudsman Service looks at complaints which is the opposite of the way that the Financial Conduct Authority says that we should do business. So whenever you've got that, that juxtaposition almost of the regulator saying, it's great to have less paperwork, and then as soon as a complaint comes in, the, the, the FOS say, well, there's not enough paperwork. Mm. It, it makes it very difficult That's for difficult. advisors to find a happy medium. Um, and, and I think the other thing with consumer duty is that it's gonna increase the advice gap, which uh, I'm sure the FCA would argue with me that it's not. It's definitely gonna increase the advice gap because it's harder to do business. So what you'll find is that the minimum amount a client has to invest will need to go up because the cost of servicing them increases for the advisor. So you'll actually find that the advice gap increases as a result of this additional regulation which is designed to protect people and give more people access to advice. I think it'll do the opposite in the short term.
0: Could it create opportunity where firms could diversify and maybe invest in more tech for those people who perhaps are affected by you know the new regulations coming in
1: so the, the firms who will benefit from this the most are those who are, are going to be tech focused probably remote working um, they'll have uh, meetings via video call highly automated back office processes and systems and the cost of servicing will, will be lower um, there are not that many firms that do that particularly well at the moment Um, there are firms that do everything remote but they charge pretty much what everybody else charges Mm. so they just make a a higher profit margin Um, I think I think that kind of the Robo is a bad word automated online digital advice is the way that this gap will be filled and potentially some of the big banks might come back into that space because they've got cash to spend on that particular side of things Um, I've got my own personal view as, as to why Robo hasn't taken off is that people don't like to be accountable for their own decisions. And if they, if you're online on a computer and you're you typing away and the computer says, right, are you now happy to make this decision? That's when people falter. And actually, if you look at most of the robo processes now, people go right through to where it says, are you ready to go? And that's when they drop out of the process because they don't want the responsibility of making the decision. Whereas if you have a person that person says this is the right thing to do, and you go okay, because y- you've almost diminished some of your responsibility there by having that that advisor. So that that's why I think the robo hasn't gone is it hasn't kind of taken off. Where I think that will change is when you no longer know you're talking to a machine, mm. which is probably not that far away with
0: the way that AI is progressing at the moment. Well, if you think about the world now, everything is is smart, smart mm. tech, smart wearables. Um, you can see where we're going as a society, that we're going to be a lot more reliant, even more so on technology than we are now. So y- you can see that if there has been that issue in terms of not you know, uh, pulling the trigger because they, they still want that comfort, I think with the way that AI is developing in a matter of a couple of years, I think that's going to be gone because you won't know. There are call centers already now which are fully AI enabled and the people who are phoning up don't know that they are, you know, are AI. So therefore, and there is a story that some people are phoning up because they're getting sort of that human interaction. They feel it, you know, and they start chatting people up. That That's a true story. So you think, well, that's happening and that's only going to get better and better over the next sort of two, three, four years. Okay, you're more optimistic than I am. Two
1: years is, I'm kind of saying five years, but...
0: I, 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 was, on a, I was on a, not a podcast, but a, another sort of interview with somebody and what they're saying now is, what you're seeing it is the worst it will ever be yes AI so it's only gonna get better and they're saying two to three years that it's gonna literally just transform because it's growing at such a such a rate and they can't put this Pandora back in the box
1: I think that's the thing is not there's there's, there are a lot of questions around AI as to whether it's going to be you know we get into iRobot and the machines take over the world or Terminator or whatever else it is Maybe at some point in the distant future, I think that the, the immediate, more immediate issue around AI is those who control the best AI will control society. And it will just put, put more control into the hands of your Googles and your Microsofts and all the rest of them than, than it ever has done previously. And when, like you say, when, when we are as a species so reliant on that technology, and to the point where you don't even know whether you're speaking to a human or, or, or a robot, that is a, an interesting change of the world, isn't it, and, and how we're going to deal with that as a species. Um, it's a fascinating time to be alive, to it, be honest. Yeah, if you look at recent times with COVID and coronavirus and the world pandemic and now AI coming onto the scene in, in, in a big way, fascinating
0: time to be alive and be and, in business as well. And you've got the geopolitical issues, you've got wars, etc. cetera. Um, <laughs> it's just, it's carnage. But I think you've just got to experience it because what can we do? What can we do to influence? In any period of
1: change, it's a period of, period of opportunity. Yeah. And that comes back to my... Naive
0: optimism around the world. There you go. You're nine again. Nine where, and ten. Where wherever there's change, there's a, there's a, an opportunity. There is. I totally agree with that. But let, let, let's talk about some of those changes then, because you, you you've had you know change squared for you know over a year now anyway, mm-hmm. and it's it's uh, you know doing well. Tell me about some of these success stories then, because your original business plan you didn't sort of you know that didn't work out. So again, you amend, you adapt. You're now focused on you know helping advisors process tech. Mm-hmm. sharing a success story that people will be interested in
1: okay so um, one of the companies that I'm, I'm working with and, and still working with at the moment we're introducing a, a client survey based technology into their business and they'd attempt to do this on their own and it hadn't, it hadn't really worked um, so still believed that that was a great thing to do and, and it would produce great results in terms of client survey client feedback on the process and how they kind of work their business um, but they were struggling as to how to get anyone involved or how it get, to get anyone to actually accept that it was a thing. So um, I engaged with them to look at how to embed that as, a, as a, a way of working in the business. And after talking to the senior execs there, uh, I created a plan where we did a, a, a big old launch across the company everybody involved, lots of webinars, lots of um, uh, email stuff, um, lots of of spoken word things, question and answers, quizzes, getting the advisors involved, uh, and then launch that tech out. And the launch that we did was accepted. And it is now being used across the entire business. And uh, it's it's a decent sized firm, a lot of advisors in there. And they're only uh, about a month, two months in so far. The results are absolutely staggering. They're incredible okay. in that the feedback coming back is highlighting things that they hadn't realized were a problem. And now they know they can fix it before it becomes a bigger problem. As in, they were probably getting complaints where, and they didn't know why they were coming in. This feedback is highlighted, right? That is, this, that is the exact area where, where issues are arising from. And likewise, it's highlighted what they're really good at and you know, where they should probably push more or, or represent themselves more on being specialists in this particular area. But I suppose the, the, the satisfaction for me is that it launched properly and it was adopted by all of the users and everyone seems happy that it's there now and it's become part of life within a very short space of time. And that's really the stuff that I absolutely love doing is, is creating that change in businesses where people come on that change journey. It's not changed because you've been told to, it's changed because you believe in it. And I, I think, unless people believe in that change, they, they won't
0: adopt. So do you follow a process then, to try and get people on that same journey then? Because you're right, you have to bring people along, and that sometimes that's going to be difficult.
1: It is, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the the most important thing to start with is getting a clear vision from the leadership team. What Why are they setting out doing this? What What is the purpose of it? And then once you have that vision, you can kind of distill that down into, well, how will that imp- influence the firm? How will it change daily operations? And then you can kind of work out, well, what will change as a result of that process, and then how do we tell everyone about, you know, what's happening. I normally run um, comms a similar way for change projects in that there's kind of a, it's coming soon, it's here, here's the detail about what you need to know, here's a recap and then ongoing support from there. It does vary by firm, but it's, a lot of firms try and do change either quietly They'll, they'll push it in the background or they'll say oh yeah we're doing that now from tomorrow hmm. but never say why or what's the purpose of it or what's the benefit of the change so I always try and go in loud and um, change happens for a reason and it's important that everyone in the company understands what that reason is uh, and it it also helps the leadership team reflect on whether they're doing it for the right reason because that will be broadcast out
0: so a lot of it is about the clarity of the communication then making sure that the vision there, the leadership team behind it, et cetera. And, and investing enough time in
1: that. Um, you, you, you need to invest in that commerce plan, Invest in bringing people with you, otherwise they won't come, in which case you end up with a, a load of initial outlay and nothing to show for it at the end, other than some disgruntled employees who have been told to do something, but they don't know why.
0: Is there is there any advice you would give to advisers at the moment with regards to areas of their business that they need to to look at?
1: So uh, if we're talking about advisors who are part of a larger group, maybe, um, I would suggest really focusing in on getting your, creating consumer duty data that will allow you to show that you are doing what you should be doing. Um, If you look at the process that we go through, the advice process, historically, there has been one data collection point, which is at the end, uh, client will get a, a, a tcf survey treating customers fairly survey which says are you satisfied and they say yes and that that's the data point well consumer duty now requires much more data points so you'll need to say you know does a client believe that the product or service they have got is good value for money how, how are you going to prove that when are you going to ask them um, do they feel supported in their endeavors are they getting information at the right time to enable them to make good decisions these are things which have never, advisors have never asked previously. This is a completely different way of operating. There is opportunity to build this, these this kind of feedback uh, points into the advice process, but you need to think about it. Really think about what data do you need to be able to then say, yes, we're doing a great job within this firm under the consumer duty guidelines. Um, for firms who are maybe on DA firms, directly authorised people on the outside, I would, or maybe even to, ask, to a certain extent, What I see very commonly in a lot of firms is that businesses are not run as businesses. They run as lifestyles. Mm -hmm. So um, a lot of firms have grown organically. It's been an advisor in a back bedroom, and then actually they've then got an assistant, and then they thought they should probably get an office. They then got an office, then got another assistant, another advisor's joined. But it's been a very organic kind of growth period. And a lot of them just, then they're not run commercially. It really is a, a lifestyle business. I mean, for example, one firm, which uh, I think is a, a, a amazes me even now, um, their process was to print everything off. Everything. Wow. Everything got printed off and put into a client file. There was an online record as well, but the process said, put it into a, uh, put it into a paper file. And on each of those files, there was a red sticky dot on the top of the paper file that was put on, and I sat down, and we were going to go in through the process. And I'm like, "What's the red sticky dot for?" It's like, "Oh, we put that on cases. Why, why do we put that on cases?" And no one really knew. And it turned out that actually, like 20 years ago, they had red dots and orange dots, which denoted a different type of case. Wow. But they still Jeez. did it. They're, so I mean, you, you can joke about how much as a paper dot, a sticky dot cost, but actually, the effort of doing stuff which had literally zero purpose has never been questioned. that that's kind of part of what i do really is say well but but why do you do that why do you do that and actually it's only when you ask those questions that you start to sit back and think
0: oh yeah i don't know actually why why do i do that so does a penny drop with some of these yeah so they actually understand As kind of a
1: a, a, kind of a business coach that is the absolute gold dust for me is when you you kind of get to that point and they go oh my god i could be doing this so much better and it's like yep my work here is done
0: Find that, yeah. I'm not. I'm not surprised to be honest, because there are. It's a cottage industry. These financial services, certainly the the advisor landscape. So there are those lifestyle businesses out there.
1: What I do think is interesting as well, though, is the consolidator side of the world, because we've seen a lot of consolidation. The firms who who have acted as consolidators, you've got maybe two or three big ones who are well oiled machines. There's been a lot of smaller firms in that consolidation space. They've bought practices and they've brought in employed advisors. They don't know how to run employed sales forces. Mm-hmm. And I think that will become a growing problem as we uh, as we go forward over the next few years.
0: What can you see happening over the next couple of years? Because I guess the way I sort of would, would um, position this is, l- let's imagine you're in a time machine and we go five years into the future. What do you think does the advisor landscape look like in five years? What's going to be the significant difference? I
1: think that we are going to see more... Um, a smaller number of bigger firms so we're going to see more consolidation that will continue um, the market is still relatively buoyant at the moment merger and acquisition market um, the the buyers are being more picky at the moment but they are they still got money they're still out there looking to buy I think that small firms w- who will really struggle with consumer duty and when the regulator gets down to that level of that that size of firm we'll start to see a lot of them decide that now's the time to get out of the market and sell so you'll you'll probably end up with a uh, a number of large, larger players who have relatively streamlined ways of operating, and, and, and the advisors within those practices use the same advice proposition, the same charging model, the same, you know, it, it's the same way of doing business. And then you'll probably have um, a, a number of specialist firms who are true independent financial advisors in the old way, but they will charge a lot of money for their wares. So you'll probably see reg tech coming on, you, the kind of robo side of things will start to progress the market will consolidate a lot more and then those who are left as independent will charge a lot more for their services and have a much smaller number of customers
0: i i agree i think i would mention that what we are seeing at the moment is there have been a number of firms that have been consolidated mm-hmm. and which is great if you are the shareholder okay what we are beginning to see feel here is that there are a number of people who've almost like been dragged along and they're not a shareholder. And what they're finding now is perhaps where they've been consolidated, the the proposition isn't in the client's interest or they don't think it's in the client interest. So the conversations now are do they go it alone? Do they set up okay. on their own? So what we are seeing now is um, there is a there is conversations because we've been in this m world for a couple of years now anyway So people are starting to look at it and go. Is this right for me long term? And what I'm, we are seeing is potentially those conversations about uh, People wanting to go and work for perhaps more regional firms because if you remember, you know 10-15 years ago in Leeds you had LEBC, you had Yorkshire Investment Group, you had Pearson Jones, you don't have that you just have you know <laughs> larger brands and um, so we are starting to see some of that consolidation move and it's almost like it's like a cycle beginning again so i'm not sure if you're seeing that but from a recruitment perspective we're starting to have these conversations where they're looking to perhaps build something or buddy up with other people of like minds that's really interesting actually
1: um i've I've heard around some fallout of of advisors who have been bought out in in my experience most of the ones who have been bought out have well, th- those who have been in firms which have been bought out of stock, but um, that obviously you probably have a much broader broader view on this than, than I do. That is interesting. I mean, I, I'm not sure. Now's it, well, now's a very fun time to start a financial advice business, with everything that's going on. You you could argue, um, with my positive hat on, that you know what's coming. You can set a new firm up exactly the right way to to make sure it operates uh, consumer duty compliant and in the best way possible with technology. Um, it is a lot, though. It's a lot to take on, especially if you've been under somebody else's wing. Um, firms that I've seen before who have made that jump have realised, you know, as I did, grow into business, it's not as easy as you, as you maybe envisage it being. But um, the growth of regional practices could be an interesting one, actually. I, I'd kind of had it more towards national firms, yeah. uh, but regional firms could be an interesting one. Well, want to
0: watch. I think from a you know a, a client perspective, I think you know there is a. It's good. It's good to have choice. You know because i think i've spoken to two clients of advisory firms that have been consolidated mm. and they like it because they're part of a bigger group there's more services yeah and there are others who perhaps don't like it as much or they've got a new advisor but i just think it creates choice into the marketplace and where there's choice there's opportunity choice is a good thing um well as,
1: as soon as we we start to lose choice you kind of it becomes um uh well you start to lose price efficiencies or, or pricing uh, Prices tend to go up when there's less choice in the marketplace. Uh, the, the kind of cartel syndrome. So we, choice is a good thing, and it should be uh, definitely be, be kind of championed. I suppose having having more advisor firms out there. I just I think people will struggle once consumer duty bites.
0: Mm. Well, luckily you're there to help them.
1: Luckily, I am well positioned for anyone that needs advice to, or, or guidance with consumer duty. Yes, happy to happy to assist. Where, where
0: can they find you, Ben? What's your website address and your uh, socials? If you jump onto the website, it's uh, changesquared.com.
1: com. Uh, we're on LinkedIn as Change Squared. I think I'm on Instagram as Change underscore Squared or something along those lines. Twitter. Yeah. If, if you search for Change Squared, you, you'll find me. Um, yeah, more than happy to have a conversation about about the individual business and to see what we
0: can do to help. Okay. Well, one final question then. This is an old recruitment question, by is the it? way. Yeah. Okay. So here you go. All right. So, what's one question you would have liked to have been asked but haven't?
1: What's a question I would have liked to have been asked but haven't been asked? Um, that's a that's a really good question because it makes you think, and there are a number of answers. What one thinking? Does that make me sound egotistical, or does that make me sound <laughs> uh, so? Uh, I don't know really a question that i'd like to have been asked but uh, but i haven't um you haven't asked about hobbies and interests
0: what are your hobbies and interests then thank you for asking <laughs> uh- <laughs> that's a segue <laughs> we'll edit that bit out <laughs> no it's fine um I, t-
1: I i tend to do quite a lot of stuff um i'm quite a scattered personality but um love fitness stuff, love running, I think you're a runner as well. Um,
0: fitness, not so much running anymore. Ah uh, okay, yeah. not running
1: anymore, right, yeah, yeah, running, gym, boot camp, that type of thing, walking, love a bit of sailing as well, uh, and I'm an avid motorbiker. Wow. So um, where I live, I live in Sheffield, and I'm right on the edge of the Peak District, so um, if I got the motorbike, within probably a minute and a half, I'm in the countryside, and it is just wonderful, wonderful feeling to traz around there on, on the bike on the weekend.
0: And is that with your wife, or just you? No, just me. Just She's uh,
1: she is not an avid biker. She's I'm an not. anti-biker, I think. What bike have you got? I have got a Honda VFR 800 for those in the know. Oh, nice! Uh, which is a sports tourer. Um, very
0: pleasant. Very nice.
1: Yeah. So that's that's how I spend my uh, my uh, spend my weekends when I can, when I've got time. When you've got time, I time. like to get out and do that. Yes. Getting that balance yeah. right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and uh, balance is something that I found is is increasingly important. Certainly when you when you run your own business in the early days. Because there is a tendency to work 100 hours a week uh seven days a week for less money than you were getting in an employed role and you're thinking well where's the where's the, where's the balance here and um yeah cer- certainly over the last few months as things have become um better more clients have come in more businesses have been able to assist it's produce more opportunities just to take some time out and actually sharpen the sword rather than just kind of hack away with a blunt sword mm-hmm. and it, it makes life a whole lot easier um and i, I would say as a word of advice to anybody it, taking the time out is as important as as being in, actually in the office itself
0: no very very wise words but ben wright it's mm-hmm. been a pleasure
1: thank you very much for having me thank i you. appreciate it